You know, that little praise chorus, I exalt thee, it's been sung since 1979 in churches and among Christians, and it holds the same weight and power, just simple words from the scripture sung. And you may convince yourself that you can claim him as savior of a life without elevating him to Lord, but there's no way to make him Lord of your life without elevating him to the priority place in your life. So I want to kick us off with this uh, teaching. Just, I just want to have one more quick moment of prayer, and it's just directed at this. If you need to say, Lord, I elevate you, I elevate you to Lord, to that prominent position. Maybe there's a little confession from you involved in that if you need. Can I just pray for you, and then we'll jump into it. Father, collectively as a church, we exalt you. We exalt you. Lord, if there be anyone in here today who came in here knowing they're living a life where you are not exalted, where they claim Savior, but they're not declaring Lord. Father, could we just right now just pause before we see what your word has to say? Would we just declare, I exalt you, Lord. I exalt you to your rightful place. I humble myself beneath you, knowing I am not you. I'm not worthy to take that place. I exalt you. I pray it in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you got in here and you didn't get sermon notes, uh, we're going to be walking through these passages. Uh, slip up your hand, and um, Sandra's back here. She'll bring those as well as, oh, Braden's back here. Oh, we got a duel on our hand. Whew. Let you guys solve it. Um, and then also, if you didn't get your communion uh, cup, if you also, you can... Uh, Direct that to Sandra, your hand, and um, she'll get you one, and you'll be ready to go uh, at the end of the message this morning. So um, you're going to see we're two-thirds of the way during this series. You're going to see over the next four weeks, we're going to be really challenging and defining what is the new that Jesus came to bring, and what does it ask of you and I as believers in Jesus Christ? Now, remember that devout first-century followers, or devout first-century Jews, They would have looked at what Jesus was sharing as something that would perk their ears. For some of them, their ears were perked like, oh, this is interesting. For others, they looked at this and said, this is like blasphemy, what he's saying, or this is scandalous even, or this is very uninformed. Specifically, the religious leaders would have looked at it this way. And we've been talking about that up till now. Jesus has at this point declared a relationship that he has with the Father that those who understood the word would know he is saying, I am the father. And Jesus then declared himself greater than the temple. These two things alone were huge. In fact, if it weren't for his popularity, probably up till now, those two things were enough to get him killed. But what he does next in front of his disciples, this I think is even higher up. And it actually declares something where Jesus is talking about a relationship and who he is. And now he's going to go forward and he's going to declare, this is about me and going forward, everything you've known about your faith has to do, it will work through me. Now, it was his closest followers who heard this, so you can understand why there wasn't a rebellion. Had he said this in the street to the religious leaders at the time, it might have been a little different. And we're going to just jump into this. 
But let me put it in, in different terms for you so you understand where we're going. If this morning I had said, hey, I want to make an announcement. I want to announce to you uh, about a change that's taking place here at Wendover Hills and how we celebrate Christmas. That alone, would you might perk up and go, oh, okay, what's this about here? Instead of this year elevating and lifting Jesus and celebrating Jesus' birthday, this year for Christmas, we will celebrate my birthday instead. So, <laughs> not the response I expected, but... <laughs> Now, if we were serious about that, like, you would be like, um, what's the punchline, right? Or if you gathered that I was really serious, you might find a way to quietly slip out to the restroom and never return, right? Or at very least, you would actually find a board member and say, can you uh, walk me through what's going on here, right? Because you would say, Tom, why are you making this all about you when it should be all about Jesus, right? That is exactly what's about to happen here when Jesus declares this thing that we will celebrate together through communion in just a moment. Let me give you some background. The Passover. When they had this celebration, this festival, they would come together, and what they would do is they were honoring the liberation from Egypt. They were remembering that they were once slaves and that God delivered them from that land, and he sent them to what a promised land that he had prepared for them. Now, we know the journey to get to that promised land was a little bit longer because of their disobedience than God had designed, but that is the journey that he's making. This from liberation, deliverance, to a new land. Now, I want you to grab that because when we talk about Jesus, you've got to see Jesus wants to liberate you from your life. He wants to deliver you out of this kind of compulsion to be selfish and to seek sin, and he wants to give you new life in him that looks totally different through the Holy Spirit. That is what they're celebrating in Passover every year. And there was all kinds of different symbolism, things that would go on during that one we know as the Passover meal. And if you ever sit down at a Passover meal, you know nothing is just put on the table. Nobody says, like, hey, let's do mac and cheese this year, right? And throws that out. Well, maybe here in the South. I don't know. Everything on the table has a meaning, has a symbolism. That's why it's on the table. So Jesus is now having this meal with his disciples. And he is going to put some meaning to a couple elements that are on the table. Now, what we know, if you like the book of John, anybody out there read through the book of John or that's one of your favorite gospels? A few of you. Okay, yeah. So what you might know in there is we get three different Passovers in the book of John, right? So we know it's at least three years. Some biblical scholars will take John chapter 5 when it says a festival, and they'll say, well, that's not Purim. That's Passover, which would be a fourth Passover if you follow that line of thinking. At least three, though, we find in there. This is the only Passover Jesus puts this symbolism to. Jesus is declaring, listen, I am going to speak about these two elements. I'm going to redefine these two elements because the new has come. Now, the disciples sitting around the table, reclining, you know, that's, what the, the, that's actually what the scriptures say, you know, that's what our paintings that, are, are, that we know of the Last Supper look like. They're just kind of lounging around. Nobody looks overly tense and worked up at the moment, right? At least that's not the view we get. But Jesus then announces this, and he's declaring the new is here. 
it's here. They're going to understand pretty quickly when he goes to the cross, maybe not fully there, but when he rises from the dead and appears to them, they're going to start to really get it. So let's take a look at it here. They're, they're at the table. Luke chapter 22, it's in your notes. There's a little typo at the end of your notes, but just follow the screen when we get there. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. They would have perked up. Suffer? What's this suffering talk? After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. That's communal. That's for all of us. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. You're not doing Passover anymore, Jesus? And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's the last line that would have been the stunner. Jesus takes two elements. One, bread. Do you remember in the Passover? They got to get out of Egypt fast. They don't have time for their yeast to rise. God gives them instruction. It's unleavened bread. Make it, take it. That's going to sustain you. That's going to be something you take with you, right? For the beginning of this journey. It's God's provision. And do you remember the cup as well, which is the this, this symbolism of the blood, that he says to him, look, if you would slaughter an innocent animal and you would smear the blood on the doorpost when the angel of death, is what the translations say, when they come, they'll pass over you, will pass over you, and no one in that house will be harmed. Those two elements, the bread to sustain you and the blood that covers you, those symbols, Jesus is holding these in front of them, and he's actually saying, when you now partake of these two in particular, and he breaks the bread, and they all drink together of the cup. We're not going to pass one cup around today, right? When he does that, he is now saying this final line, do this in remembrance of me. There's something about me, Jesus is saying that is found in these two elements. And from here on out, you don't have to celebrate it. You don't have to think about it in terms of there's no power in the sustaining of what happened at Passover, though it's very proper to remember those things and honor God in those things and continue to do so. The power is now found in me. That is what Jesus is declaring. Listen, if there was a few Pharisees in the room, if there were some Jewish religious leaders in the room, they would have flipped a lid when Jesus said this. When Jesus is now saying, it is me. Maybe one of his disciples is kind of like, Jesus, you kind of sound like you're making it all about yourself. To which Jesus might have responded, that's the point. That's what I'm here for. He continues, take a look, uh, Luke 22, uh, verse 20 now. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, get this, this cup is my new, say it with me, covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus is declaring it now. There is a new covenant, a new covenant. Now listen, everyone at the table, they know the scriptures, right? They would have known new covenant. They would have thought new covenant as in, as in Jeremiah 31, new covenant, do you remember what Jeremiah declares 600 years ago when Jeremiah declares a new covenant is coming? <coughs> Take a look at it. 
The days are coming. Clear, I will make covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors, the covenant he made at Mount Sinai with Israel when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. This new covenant is coming. And Jesus is declaring now, in these elements, this new covenant has come. It's here. Jesus is unleashing the new right here in front of his disciples. That's what's happening. Jeremiah 31, 34. I will put my law in their heart or in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. The covenant looks different. No longer is it going to require animal sacrifice to stay current with God or to stay on speaking terms with God. Here, it's going to be in your heart and in your mind. I will be their God and they will be my people. I will forgive them their wickedness and remember their sins no more. This is what Jesus is declaring, this new covenant. And so up till now, we've been talking about the old covenant with the nation of Israel. Jesus is coming now to say, the new has come. I create new covenant with you now, the new that Jesus brings. Is that good news? Is that good news to you? You're no longer required to do many of the things that are found in the old covenant. It wasn't your covenant. Take a look if you want. It's not super exciting reading, I'll warn you. But read through the book of Leviticus, and you will be glad that many of the things in the Old Covenant are no longer required of you this morning, right? You had a little sausage during your breakfast time this morning. You'd be glad about that, right? That's what we're talking about here. The new has come, the new that Jesus offers. Jesus comes and says, I will liberate you from your past. doesn't matter what your past is. I'll liberate you from that. I'll deliver you from the power of your own selfishness, your own tendency to draw to your sin or what you want, and I will bring you new life in me, something to sustain you here and for eternity with the Father. The new that Jesus brought is all centered on him 100%, 100%. And that's what Jesus is declaring here with these simple elements. Do you understand how it's so important when we have communion together that we don't allow ourselves to just flow through the motions of, you know, Jesus, you know, and that, you know, it was good. How was church today? It was good. We did communion. We did it in a cool way today, you know. What we're talking about is, no, I got to receive once again and declare the new covenant Jesus made with me. Like he has written himself on my heart and on my mind has given me new life in him. That's what we get to declare. If you're here this morning and you don't know new life in Jesus Christ, you haven't received the new Jesus has to offer, I invite you, even this morning as we're going through this message, as we have a time of communion, to simply say, Lord, forgive me for my past. Liberate me. Come into my life. I want that new life. I want to live for you. And in an instant, just a simple prayer like that, you're a child of God. You are experiencing the new Jesus has to offer. Now, he won't just leave you there. He wants to take you forward and transform you and teach you new things. The church is part of that journey. All in Christ. All in Christ. Where are we going with this from here, though? 
here's the struggle. What we often do with new things is not that we don't embrace the new things, but we often butt them up right against the old thing and try to hang on to both. We talked before, it's why we buy that new couch and you hang on to the old couch and you stick it down in the basement, right? Or you donate it to the youth room, and I told you we don't want it, right? But can you think about the discussion you might have in your house between husband and wife, all right? I'm not saying who instigates it, right? If you bought the new couch, the beautiful new couch that you put as a centerpiece to your living room or family room or wherever you'll be, and you decide the old couch you would just butt it up right next to the new couch and have it right there, right? The one that the new one was designed to replace. I'm not talking about you bought a new one because it's part of a set of something you already own. You bought a new one to replace the old one, and you decide, I'll put the new one. Wow, how beautiful that is. I am so excited, and I'm just going to sit here and watch the ball game, right? But right next to it is the old couch, right? Some of you are giggling because your house looks this way, right? That's what you're telling me just by your giggles, right? Yeah, Hey, listen, no problem with your couch. Might be an argument with you and your spouse, right? And if I need to come uh, mediate a little bit, um, don't call me. Call somebody else. Um, (laughs) But it does not work well with covenants. It does not work well when we embrace the new Jesus has to offer, this new life in him, and we try to butt it right up against the old covenant, A covenant which, by the way, wasn't made for you anyway. So the church, what we're going to find is very early on in the church, they wrestled with this. They wrestled with this issue. New Gentiles, non-Jewish people coming to the faith, right away they wrestled with this idea of, well, how much do these new Gentile believers, these new Christians, have to follow (laughs) the law of Moses, right? And there was argument and struggle right away on that. And so they're butted up against things right away. We find some great words of wisdom in the book of Acts that we'll get to later down the road. Then we find the church goes from persecuted minority to protected and wealthy majority when Christianity becomes legal in Constantine's uh, reign. And what we find there is there is this, this receiving and then embracing of old covenant things, mainly in the way of conversion. And we find many stories of this. Let me just share with you one this morning. You might know this character from from your history classes, maybe church history if you've ever taken anything like that. Uh, The guy's name was Julius Firmicus Matamus, right? A great name for kids if you're ever thinking about something in the future. You can go with all three. Fourth century. So he's actually a pagan astrologer, and he becomes a Christian. He is a convert, Like, he did the exact thing that we just talked about what Jesus ushered in him to new life in Christ. He got so excited about this. But then he realized there is a lot of places where Constantine has flooded money, and we have these beautiful cathedrals that have gone up in these towns, in these villages. And there are a lot of pagan activity going on in these areas. And it really bothered him. Like, it might bother you and I as well. It might be the same kind of thing. You might have people in your life that don't know Jesus, and you're like, man, it bothers me. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go love them. I'm going to have intentional relationship. I'm going to look for ways that I can share Jesus' name and Jesus' hope and what he came to offer, right? And you would be right in doing so. And you would be wrong not doing so. So that's why I keep pushing you to do it, 
That's not quite how Julius Firmicus decided to do it. He believed in forced conversions. Do you know what a forced conversion is? Usually it's a you will believe or else type of mentality. Often the or else was death, right? And so that's what he kind of employed. Now, he didn't have power to do it himself. He wrote to Constantine, or rather to Constantine's sons who were in charge at the time. And when he wrote them, he said, I am so dismayed by the pagan activity here. And he pleaded with them that they actually employ some type of force, some type of activity in this to give an ultimatum towards belief. When you reach back into the Old Testament, Old Covenant, take some passages, take them out of context, blend them up in what you want to do, you can come up with ways to do about anything. And what we actually find during this period is that many, many non-believers were slaughtered. Many were put to death that chose not to believe in Jesus Christ. Or many Jews were put to death. Why? Well, because they were the ones that crucified Jesus a few centuries before. Justification for this? Take a look at it. Deuteronomy 13, coming quoted from Julius Firmicus's letter. <clears throat> if your very own brother or your son or daughter or the wife you love or your closest friend secretly entices you saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods that neither you nor your ancestors have known, gods of the peoples around you, whether near or far from one end of the land to the other, do not yield to them or listen to them. Show them no pity. Do not spare them or shield them. You must certainly put them to death. Your hand must be the first in putting them to death and, the hands, uh, and in the hands of all the people. Stone them to death because they tried to turn you away from God, the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Seems pretty clear, right? <clears throat> well, that's what he thought and ran with it. And when we take things out of context, when we don't consider even the Hebrew language, when we don't consider the people that it was written to and the time it was written and what God intended for the nation of Israel at the time, we can come up with all kinds of things. And that's what happened here. And so there is danger in receiving the new that Jesus had to offer and then bringing it back and butting up the old couch right alongside it. It's why Christianity often doesn't make sense to a lot of folks. It's why when we say things like the Bible says, it's not so much that people are against what the Bible says, it's what else the Bible says. That is the struggle. And so we actually in the modern church, in contemporary Christianity, we struggle with this to a degree as well. We're not out there putting people to death. We don't do a lot of forced conversions like that. Maybe sometimes our Facebook posts sound that way, right? But we struggle in some ways. Here's just a few Old Covenant leftovers that we might grab sometimes. And some of these you might go, hmm, what? All of these show up in the Old Covenant, but not the new Jesus brings. Take a look at them. I'll put them in question form. Why are Christians behind the movement to post the Ten Commandments alone in classrooms and courthouses? Why not putting up the Sermon on the Mount? Why do we give children a copy of the Old Covenant bound with the New without teaching them the difference? Why do some churches have priests? 
Why do Christians sometimes describe their pastors as anointed by God? Why do some Christian leaders constantly warn against God's impeding and immediate judgment? Why would a Christian believe God judges nations or a nation at all? New Testament authors, along with Jesus, spoke of a once and for all final judgment. Why would a Christian kick their son or daughter out of the house for being pregnant or for being gay? Why would Christian leaders declare a tsunami is God's judgment on a predominantly non-Christian region of the world? Why do Christians judge non-Christians for not behaving like Christians? Why do pastors or Christians leverage phrases like the Bible says or the Bible teaches inadvertently giving equal authority over us to everything that is in the Bible? Why do we take marriage and dating advice from a pagan king with 700 wives? Why am I putting you on edge right now even asking any of these questions? Because it challenges us to think about where we have borrowed from the old covenant and tried to make work. And where sometimes it has actually closed a door to the new Jesus has to offer in people's lives. Now listen, I want to be clear. None of this is a problem if we're just getting together as Christians or as long-term Christians who have little to no interest in sharing our faith with other people. We kind of know what we mean, right? And we just kind of like, yeah, we're, we're good. We know. None of it would be a problem. But listen, if you, if I, if we, if we desire to participate in the ecclesia of Jesus Christ, if we desire that we want to see others come to know Jesus and we want to be on a mission, then this repurposing and rebranding and pulling along with things that Jesus says we're not bound to is a problem. Not no room for the Old Testament, right? No room for Old Covenant. There's a difference there. And we'll explain that more as we're going. What, what's at stake here is not just simply theological correctness, though that's always very important. This is about the Great Commission. This is about evangelism. It's about the ecclesia of Jesus that we talked about two weeks ago. It's about when we share our faith. It's about being salt and light in our world. It's about being able to express the new Jesus came to offer other people so they understand clearly what Jesus is offering and not what sometimes we inadvertently kind of repackage in to what Jesus says, I came to give you. Retro's fine maybe for your middle school daughter's bedroom. Probably looks pretty cool, right? But it doesn't work very well in our new covenant Jesus came to offer us, to make our lives new. To paraphrase James, the brother of Jesus, in the book of Acts, he said, this is not about making it unnecessarily difficult for those who are coming to Jesus. To paraphrase Paul, this is about winning some and saving some. Listen, if for some Christians who, are, who, who maybe are Maybe you're not passionate about this, or maybe you're just waiting for revival to break out so you don't have to do the hard work now that God is calling us to. What lies in front of us in the next few weeks won't feel very urgent. In fact, it may be a little threatening to you. But if your heart is broken, if your heart is broken by the brokenness of our world, if your heart is broken by people that don't know Jesus Christ, if 
If your heart, if your heart grieves that our culture so easily dismisses Christianity and the church, then what's ahead of us? I hope you'll see it as more than just theological wranglings. If you're a parent and you're concerned about the durability of your child's faith and you're starting to see it crumble already, if you're interested in a, new, in a version of your faith that's free of what really makes us unnecessarily resistible, then here we go. The next few weeks, we're going to share exactly from Scripture what is the new, what is in this new that Jesus came? What does he ask of you and I? And then the questions before us, are we doing it? Why aren't we doing it? How do we get out there empowered and do it? That's where we're heading. Now, the teachings in the next few weeks, they may rock you a little bit. They may challenge you. I definitely believe they will encourage you also. So I'm going to ask you something. If this is moving your heart, I'm going to ask you to do something this week that we don't uh, normally will never ask. I'm going to ask you to take time to listen to a second teaching that prompts us this week. As we're a couple weeks behind and really need to wrap up because Advent's an important season where we walk through a, a liturgy of Advent, I'm going to encourage you this week to listen to a message. I've already recorded it. I did it earlier in the week. It's already uploaded to, to YouTube. It'll premiere every night at 7 o'clock all through the week. So that will get you your little reminders if you're, you subscribe to our YouTube page or it's there for on-demand. You can watch it anytime you want. I'm not going to babysit you. I'm not going to you know, send you messages every day reminding you of this. I'm going to just leave it in your camp to, to decide how much priority it would be to continue this teaching and understanding of the new and make it priority and mark that. But it'll be available all week long this week. I've titled it Your First New Look at God's Book. And so you'll see that uh, online. It's about 27 minutes long.